if you don't know women in architecture, one, bullshit, but two, call me. I will introduce yeah. you to like 20 tomorrow. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello, and welcome to Architecting. This is a podcast about the lives of architects. About the people and stories behind the buildings that we see around us and the images that brought them to life. And with the very international world that we live in. This show will purposefully be local and narrow. Only focusing on the Colorado community of designers. Hi, I'm Adam Wagner. I'm the host of this show. I'm an architect who's worked for a dozen different firms in three different countries. But for the last five years, I've been rooted in Denver, Colorado, where I'm at Open Studio Architecture, and I teach at the University of Colorado, Denver. I like connecting with other designers and learning from their experiences. So now I'm broadcasting these conversations with the goal of creating a stronger local community here in Colorado. That brings us to today's guest, uh, in my mind, one of the, the busiest and, and best connected architects in Denver, Katie Donahue. So Katie is the co-founder of KWork Studio, uh, an associate architect at Handel Architects, an instructor at the University of Colorado Denver, and at Parsons School of Design in New York. Uh, to go along with her four jobs, Katie also has three degrees, a business degree from the University of Wisconsin, an architectural master's from CU Denver, and a post-professional architectural master's from Cornell. I felt like Katie and I are, are kindred architectural spirits, but we've kept kind of flying past each other, and we've really never talked to each other for more than a few minutes. Uh, and she's, she's always been a, a mystery to me in how she's able to do all that she does. So this, this episode is really an excuse just to hang out with her and to try to figure out the secrets of her productivity. Beyond all the professional roles that she holds, Katie is also busy pushing for sustainable practices like passive house and reuse of different materials. She also lends her talents to organizations like uh, Architecture for Humanity and Open Architecture Collaborative and consistently and powerfully advocates for underrepresented groups of designers. At one point in the interview, she lists off all the, the many things that she's working on within the community. And I say, I say something like, oh, so you're just working on a few small, easy things or something like that. I don't, I don't think she, she got, got it, but it was supposed to be a joke because she's actually tackling a lot of complicated and, and ambitious issues. And so all that to say, I'm, I'm very impressed by her energy and her passion and her drive. And after the credits, this episode includes more of us just hanging out and talking about uh, work-life balance, adventures in Nepal, and designing shoes and candles. And then we were interrupted by both my kids at one point while we were talking about parenthood and the profession. So I hope you enjoy. So our goal at Architecting is to help connect Colorado designers, and nobody is already doing this better than Modern in Denver. For over a decade, Modern in Denver has been striving to bring architects together and to educate the public about what good design can be and can accomplish. I'm very excited to be working together with them now on this shared goal. So over the years, they have constantly created fantastically curated stories about Colorado designers and projects, 
and work to connect the profession with live local events. So go out now, buy a copy of their new print issue, subscribe to their weekly email list, and follow them on Instagram. This episode is also sponsored by K-Work Candles. Looking for candles? Well, K-Work Candles are awesome, beautiful soy candles that smell like, um, I think lavender? Yeah, lavender. So buy them now. They all need to go, 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 go. And now to the interview. I have the worst deadline story ever. I, this was with two colleagues of mine and we were just, we were doing a competition, you know, kind of for fun, kind of for, for passion. And we worked really hard on it. Like, uh, we, it was submitted via email, which I think is like dumb and archaic. It's like, there's no like FTP protocol, blah, 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 blah. So fine. We email it. And at the last second I had tested all my like email methods to make sure it would go through because it was up to 25 megabytes. And of course, like, you know, 15 minutes before the deadline, like, uh, it's not going to send. I'm like scrambling to try all these methods, send it at like one minute before, but by the time it actually like sent, it was technically 15 seconds late and they disqualified us. And I feel horrible to no my way. colleagues because it was all my fault. 15 seconds. No way. Say la vie. Yeah. Who is that mm-hmm. through? I mean, that's brutal. That, that competition. Yeah. Um, it's a really, it's a really great competition being put on by the city of LA it's called low rise LA and it's challenging preconceived notions of like, you know, what can design contribute to the city? And it's talking about, well, we need density. We also don't want to destroy our suburbs. So what can we do to actually improve the suburbs and make better cities? And it was uh, driven by a, a whole bunch of community discussions and groups. And that was really supposed to inform the architecture. And I think the whole notion was like, you know, it's not our, it's not the architect as ego or author like what can we all come together to actually make our cities better? So there was quite an impressive uh, juror list and a lot of city participants, but yeah. Well, so what was <laughs> the project? So, well, I'm gonna, uh... It was, so you had all these different options. You could renovate an existing well-known house. You could um, propose combining two lots to create a new typology of like a suburban house we submitted for a category that was like a uh, creating a fourplex on a, a typical lot size. Um, so it was a lot of fun, but now I need to send my two colleagues flowers for being the dipshit who fucked it up. So <laughs> did, did, did that like just, that like just happened. I mean, that was, that's, yeah. that's a yeah. recent thing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Still stings. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. That happens. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's funny. I I feel like, I feel like I know you really well, but we've only met, I think once in, in in real life, but it it seems like you, you, I see your stuff on social media so much. I feel like I have this window into your life. That's more than I, than I do or something, but yeah. Well, same. I think we've crossed paths in a lot of different types of ways. And it's always funny, right? When you like forget that that person doesn't know you've been like, seeing all their, their things and you want to like talk about a story you feel like you have together. You're like, Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I feel like, but I feel like I know you, I've known you longer than you've known me. Cause you so when I first moved to Denver, uh, I submitted for the young architects award stuff, you know, and, uh, and I, 
I won, I won something and I felt pretty good about it at the thing. And then there was this person who won like four five, six awards, it seemed like, and she wasn't even there. And there was just like this, <laughs> this, like this buzz around of like, oh yeah, it's, it's Katie, it's Katie. And it was like, who is this person who's, who's in New York right now and just cleaning up on these <laughs> awards. And so from then on, I was like, okay, I got to look out for this person. And then, and then finally you like <laughs> moved funny. back or something. And so I was like, all right, here, this is got to get her on my radar. But and then I did then, come back. Yes. Then he came back, but yeah, that was my oh, first funny. Uh, K story. Yeah. <laughs> that's great so I, try, I keep trying to figure out the best way to ask this question but, and I think what about this so if you if you wrote a book what what would the bio on the back of it say about you who who, who are you oh. in like two sentences oh I should have been prepared for this question um god I guess that de- definitely depends who you ask um <laughs> I don't know I guess from my standpoint I, I am somebody who's really curious about a lot of different things, um, kind of relentlessly, relentlessly and maybe like obnoxiously. Um, I am a bit of a chameleon. I think there's just a lot to be learned from so many different facets of architecture and design and just, you know, thinking about community and space planning. I just um, am interested in all the kind of weird facets. I think that thinking about space and design affords. So, uh, Yeah. Where, so where did that come from? Where has that always been kind of in you, that, that searching? Um, probably. I, you know, growing up, my mom was always, you know, curious and interested in like art and design. It was something that we always like talked about and it was always really interesting to me. Um, I feel like also that plus like my grandfather, who was a business person and entrepreneur and kind of push me in certain directions. I, I definitely found myself always interested in both sides of like art and design as well as like science and business. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah, probably to have just always been a curious little bee. Where, where'd you grow up? Where'd you, where'd you come from? So I grew up in good old Wisconsin. Mm. I grew up in Verona, Wisconsin, right outside of Madison. It is a beautiful place to grow up. Um, surrounded by water. Uh, which we don't have so much of here in Colorado. Um, And so grew up in Verona, just outside of Madison and went to UW Madison um, for my undergraduate degree before taking off and then dabbling in Colorado and New York. Yeah. So let's back up. So, so you went to Wisconsin for undergrad. What what was that in? I did. So I actually went to um, undergrad for an undergraduate degree in business. And it's funny because I kind of crafted this plan. I was like, okay, I want to be an architect. Um, I I was fortunate to grow up around a lot of Frank Lloyd Wright architecture. And my mom was always really interested in these homes too. And um, I came to learn about, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright as an incredibly prolific, important and influential architect, Um, maybe also kind of a dickhead and like not great at business. And so, (laughs) uh, so I was like, okay, well, if I have to get a master's degree in architecture, I can get anything in an undergrad and anything. Okay, cool. Well, like, why don't I, you know, do business? My grandfather, who I affectionately referred to as my bumpa, had also said like, well, if, you know, in other words, like if you're going to do this artsy fartsy kind of design architecture thing, maybe get like a degree in engineering or business. I was like, okay, that like sounds like it could help me as a platform as like being influential in architecture. And I think I like business. Um, so I did an undergraduate degree in business 
before going to architecture school. And it's just so funny because like after I did go to grad school for architecture, everyone's like, oh, oh, you did business and then did architecture. You like changed your mind. It's like, no, I just decided to take like the longest possible route to get here. So, um, but the, you know, the business school at UW-Madison is right across from the art school. And so, you know, I was going through this business program, but I learned like, oh, you're supposed to have this thing called a portfolio to apply for architecture school. So I took as many art classes as I could. And it's, you know, you've got like basically the school that has the most money going to the business school and then cross the street to the art program, which has like the least amount of like funding and support. So it was like a very funny night and day. Um, and actually at one point, you know, so I'm just trying to, you know, learn about everything I can take painting, take, take drawing sculpture, um, starting to build a portfolio of who knows what, like, I don't, I don't know. I didn't know. Um, but at one point I did get a call from the university and, and they're like, oh, hey, you've maxed out the amount of credits you can take. And I was like, what? Like, that doesn't sound like a thing. Like, I'm paying you money. I'm going to school. Like, they're like, try less hard. I'm like, okay. So I had to like, um, uh, I had to actually like uh, make a, a case and present it to them and um, like argue, debate to be able to stay to finish. I just needed like one last semester um, to take these last credits. So they didn't understand why I was doing business and, and architecture. There's definitely no like groundwork for anybody really doing that. It wasn't really a thing. Um, so in the end it, it worked out, but that was kind of the path. I was like, okay, I'll study architecture um, like on the sidelines while I get my business degree then you know worked in architecture in Madison actually for a year or two after that before heading out to, to grad school. So sort of for so much forethought <laughs> like you know most most people we talk to on here it, you know you don't know what you're getting into in undergrad most of the time right but to oh, think about but you <laughs> yeah. did because you thought I, I want to be in architecture but I'm going to wait four years to get into it and then you know get something else. <laughs> I, I, I foresight those, or just <laughs> or uh, just didn't know what I was doing <laughs> well it seemed like you did so so you did so when you graduated with your business degree you still had enough architecture courses to to do a little bit of architecture to work at a firm before you came to see you is that what you're saying kind, or kind yeah. of sort of yeah it's interesting because UW-Madison um I think they gave Frank Lloyd Wright some kind of like a like honorary degree, despite the fact that there's no actual architecture program there. I think the saying goes that um, Milwaukee, you know, has a great architecture program and Madison allegedly like stole all the, the like med students or med program or something like that. So like Milwaukee does architecture and, and Madison won't touch it. Mm. Um, so I didn't have any technical architecture classes. They were all like architecture adjacent. They were art or art history or things of that nature. Um, and so I went to work for a small firm called Udbari Solner Design Company. It was always around like five people, which was like the best place to start off. But I was basically administrative, helping run, you know, the office because mm. for many architects, you know, you go to architecture school, you want to be a sole practitioner. You didn't study a business. You just are like, okay, well, I'm an expert in architecture. I'm going to also be a business person in this thing. So it was a great chance for me to apply a lot of those business schools and then like you know, poke my way into architecture and project management. Um, so learned a tremendous amount there um, and did that for a little while before, you know, I ended up staying a little bit longer just because it was turning out to be a great experience, but eventually it was like, okay, I need to go to design like proper architecture school and get this like degree thing so I can get this like license thing. So then what was that choice like of deciding where you want to go? 
You know, I ended up the complete opposite of where I thought I was going to go. I was really interested in the East and the West Coast. Um, the, you know, at the, I think that, let's see, that was back in like 07, like recession time. Um, the small practice that I had been working at was actually doing pretty well despite the recession, just because they had somebody for the first time who was kind of doing a business and business development role, I think. And so they, you know, tried to offer me a, a track to become a partner, but I'm like fresh out of undergrad school. I was like, I, you know, I think I probably need to learn some more things as enticing as that is. And so um, I really thought I'd end up on the east or the west coast. And I was learning more about Denver and Boulder. And at the time, it was a really big deal. I think it was Denver that had mandated that all municipal buildings were going to be lead accredited. And so like that was progressive at the time. And so I'm like, okay, they care about the earth. Um, they want to make a difference. This is, you know, a big part of why I want to go into architecture. And so there was a design build program that like really was really quite strong and still to this day is incredibly strong. Um, so I ended up choosing to go to University of Colorado Denver for my grad school and also Jonathan, my now fiance, we were kind of like, well, you know, let's pick somewhere to go for three and a half years and then we'll go to the east or the west coast it was kind of the, the trajectory. Um, and I think like a lot of people came to Denver and was like, well, shit, I like really like it here. It's pretty great. Uh, it's yeah. kind of like the best of both all the worlds. <laughs> so, yeah, ended up here, which I really didn't think would be the case. Um, didn't even end up doing the design build program, found myself working for the biggest architecture firm there is in the world, Gensler, and then a one-person architecture firm, Endemic, Clark Fenhouse, like could not be a different world. And I was like, well, I really like, you know, both of these things. So I kept doing that. Um, so, you know, the plan was get educated. I ended up staying around for a while and working for Gensler. Um, and then I was like, okay, well, you know, Jonathan, we're looking at the East and the West Coast. Um, and so I decided to do a postgraduate degree program. So that ended, that's actually what ended up taking me to the East Coast before I came back here. So let's go back. So you're going to, <laughs> you're going to grad school at CU. Uh, and it's so funny. You're the second person in a row who's been talking about Clark. He keeps coming up on this podcast. Oh, yeah. He's a very influential <laughs> guy, I think, at that time. I mean, yeah. But uh, so, so yeah, you're going to school. Um, and so you do three years there and you're, you, you work for Ginsler in the summer or when you graduate or when, when you're working for Clark too. Yeah. So all the while I'd been doing an internship basically for both. So was dabbling in both kind of worlds while I was a student. And then after I graduated, um, Gensler offered me a full-time position. So I stayed on with Gensler. Um, it was a like really interesting experience because when they first brought me on as a student, it was specifically for a project called Redefining the Town Square. And so it was this completely research-based, like theoretical um, ideology about like, how can we recreate actual public space when we're also digital? which I thought was really interesting for, you know, a, a company that builds a lot of actual architecture that they were doing this kind of hypothetical research project. And so it was ran out of their London office and I was really enamored with all the resources they had because Gensler Denver, their office is kind of a small to medium size, but then you have like all these brilliant people doing all sorts of really interesting things at all of their locations all over the, all over the world. So I was brought on mostly because of a lot of my community Kind of initiatives and like interest in working with community. I had been really active with Architecture for Humanity at the time and a lot of not-for-profits. 
Um, and so ended up staying on with them to work on real projects as well. Um, so it was a really tough decision because I was, you know, learning so much. Um, so it was tough saying like, okay, am I going to go to one more school and get one more degree and like take a stab at the East Coast? Like, or should I be staying here? So it was, it was like, a, it was tricky, but it was also incredibly enticing just because of all the fantastic work coming out of some of the schools I was looking at, um, out of the East Coast, out of all the practices out there. So it was like really hard and really easy at the same time. Yeah. So what did you feel like you came out of CU with? Like, what did you get good? And then uh, what was the sort of things that were lacking that you were then looking for in like a post-professional degree? I think, um, you know, there are a lot of adjunct and a lot of working educators at the school. And so you, you get pretty good glimpses into the way that they practice and they, you know, everybody brings their own kind of work philosophy and design flow into pedagogy. So I felt like I had been exposed to a lot of things and it kind of went back to some things my, my bumper had told me that like, you know, there's not just one way to like do business and like he doesn't, might not know anything specifically about architecture, but he's saying like, okay, you think you have to go to school. Um, and then at the time you couldn't sit for your license um, while you were in school, you couldn't get your like IDP hours. You had to wait until you graduated before you could start any of that. I think you can now do all of those like at the same time concurrently. So he had said, he's like, why would you, you know, why would you go and just have to work for somebody? Why not like get and to get those hours? So why not think about how else you could do this? Why yeah. not run your own architecture firm right out of school, hire the architects that you're going to learn from, get your hours and like start business right away. Um, so I think, I think um, I came out of CU having seen some similar business models that were really common in Denver. And I wanted to know about other ways to practice. I wanted to know about other ways to design um, that maybe kind of challenged the preconceived notions of like what an architecture firm was supposed to be. Like, it doesn't have to be the big corporate thing and it doesn't have to be the kind of starving artist of a, a fledgling sole proprietor that maybe there's other other models out there to see and other models that haven't been explored or tested yet at all. So um, what, when I ended up going, to, the program I ended up going to is Cornell and they had a really big fo focus on cross-disciplinary studies. And so it hmm. seemed like a no-brainer for me um, to kind of dabble in all these cross-pollination opportunities. It also, at that point, I was like, you know, I also want to teach. Like I want to make real architecture. I want to consider and design and speculate on you know, paper architecture that maybe will never be built, but could be influential or will push my understanding of design. And, and I want to teach like to this day now, like teaching is where I probably learn the most from students and from colleagues like you and everybody around me. So um, going to that third program, I was so terrified. I was going to show up the first day and be like, what am I doing? Like, I don't need another degree, but it ended up being like the most formidable thing for me that helps solidify how all these like cross-pollination opportunities could be synergistic and actually support one another. Um, so it, it gave me a foray into like developing my own approach to, to teaching, um, to like having a more critical discourse um, and just seeing what's out there. Cause you know, every school and institution, every state, every city, every group of designers and every place has completely different stories and approaches. So it ended up being the absolute best thing for me. Yeah, I'm always interested about that. I, I I always really want to know kind of what what was the scene at that school? What what who what what was going on here? What was going on here? So, and Cornell is such a storied place. So, for you, 
what was the sort of feeling and who, who are the kind of influential people there for you? Oh man, I mean, like everybody, that was the fascinating thing is, um, I think uh, Jenny Sabin had just gone to mm. Cornell just a little bit before, who has just absolutely incredible installation and artwork as well as legitimate architecture work, who has grants with like the NSF, runs like three different companies of her own um, and, and is an incredible teacher. Um, I had David Moon and uh, Nayan Huang, who I think right now are at the Cooper Union or Columbia, I think, um, who were really influential in the way that I thought about international architecture, who thought from a very like community and humanitarian standpoint of like, what does it mean to occupy a space and what are the stories around these people in these spaces? Um, and you know what, the, one of the biggest things I was afraid of is I was coming in with you know, my own set of experiences and I was in their MRC II program. So this post-professional program, the way it was run is that it was mixed basically also with MRC students for their first professional master degree and then also undergrad students. And I mm. like, this is so naive of me, but I thought like, oh, like I'm gonna be with undergrad students. You know, I'd also had gaps in between my degrees. So I was like a very advanced student in age, I'm saying, um, and like that, like was the greatest thing. I mean, the undergrad program at Cornell is like, you know, oftentimes touted as, as being like really interesting and having students come out with really great work and it was. So like the things I had to offer were always being countered by things I didn't know about that like the younger students or less experienced or the undergrad or even MRC one students were introducing me to. And so there were cross collaborations um, and like group projects and they were incredibly rich just because of the diversity of people and experiences coming into them. So then, so you were there and then you graduated and then you couldn't go for a fourth degree. So you had to decide to do something else. <laughs> what, what was next? Yeah, yeah. What was that like? You know, it's funny. I, I had always thought I was going to get a PhD in something. I, hmm. You know, maybe, maybe this is because Still time. I wanted, I wanted to be, no, <laughs> um, I wanted to be either an architect or a neuro surgeon um so maybe just want a doctor of architecture to like make up for that i don't know um turns out i'm horribly squeamish i learned um through a horrible experience when i was working at a vet vet clinic i thought i'd you know get exposed to anatomy and blood and all this stuff and you know i had this is when i was in high school so i had zero formidable actual real skills um so i just picked up dog poop most of the time um but one time there was a an emergency surgery and the vet had to come in and they were doing the surgery on this rat. This was like this dear woman's beloved pet. And she'd spent like thousands and thousands on this rat who had cancer. So they had to do this emergency surgery. And I was just tasked with like, you're the only one here, high school child. Like, just look at this machine and tell me if this line goes over here. I was like, I can do this. This is so exciting. And I'm like watching. And as soon as that like knife went in and like, there was so much blood for this tiny little rat. I was just like, uh-oh and then like that's like you you need to sit down I was like no no I'm fine and after the fact he's like I think you're squeamish and I was like no I just I must not feel well because like I'm really interested in this so like it was quite a paradox for me to like be really interested in it but then like be a total wuss about blood so it's like okay architect architect it is yeah you, you can carve <laughs> into buildings in those systems yeah the, the blood <laughs> looks different it's yeah. yeah 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 so okay so you asked me um so I graduated and, um, you know, wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Uh, Jonathan and I were talking about like, um, he would come to the East Coast or I would come back or would figure it out. And I found myself just with like incredible opportunities having gotten to network with like, you know, so many architecture firms and architects that I had 
learned about in textbooks were all of a sudden like in front of me at events and, you know, open to having conversations. So I ended up staying there to work for what was, you know, at first I was like, well, I should work here at least for just a year. I'm here. I might as well. Um, and so, you know, one year of being there turned into two, three, four. And then I think about five years later before I decided like, okay, I'm going to, you know, Denver's the place I want to be. I'm going to go back to Colorado um, and I'm going to practice there. So you were, you were in New York and were you, were you working for Handel then or? Yeah. yeah. So it's funny because um, this is so silly of me. I had a precedent in my architecture portfolio when I went to interview for to like for a job with them. And I did not realize it was their project, which is mm. like absolutely asinine. In my defense, it was like an early project from many, many years ago that maybe probably even shouldn't have been in, the, in there, but it had referenced one of their their Flushing Meadows pool recreation center and like a really interesting structural anomaly. And, and I remember the uh, Rick interviewing me. He's like, Oh, you have our project in there. I was like, uh-huh, of course I do. Uh, so I felt very full circle. And so I ended up working for Handel Architects and I still work for them today. Um, and they do inc incredible work. They are pushing the boundaries of what sustainable high-rise buildings can be. They have a very strong stance on improving the urban life um, of people in cities and how do we make this better because we all need to think about urbanism as our future um, and so it became a, a fantastic place to to learn um, to also be challenged for sure um, and so I ended up staying there a lot a lot longer because it was like this is actually a really tremendous uh, tremendous fit. Mm. Yeah I think they're interesting where they seem like a like a boutique firm in some ways, but then I was surprised when I went and looked, you know, how many, it's like 200 people or something like that. And the, the project scales that are, they're working at is huge. And, um, but it doesn't, in my mind, at least doesn't seem like a real like corporate kind of firm or at least, but. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting observation. I think, you know, Handel's grown a lot pretty quickly. I think we have about 130 people in New York, which is our headquarters office. We have, you know, somewhere around 10 to 20 then in Hong Kong, in Boston, and then San Francisco. And I think so, somebody once had said like, Handel Architects is like the most famous firm you've never heard of. Yeah. Um, and they, <laughs> they kind of fly under the radar, but the amount of work that is coming out of that office is, is pretty tremendous. And I've heard some of the partners say that like, you know, they like to still think they're a pirate ship, even though hmm. maybe they have become the size of like the oil tanker, but they pride themselves on continuing to think um, like a boutique firm or to to really be hard pressed about design and to not let anything overcome that. Hmm. So what's your kind of role within the firm there? Uh, yeah, so when I so when I decided to come back to Colorado, you know, the I had enough small projects of my own since about 2013. I'd always been working on my own small projects um, for K work studio, which had gone through, has gone through like different design name changes and such. Um, so it was always, you know, whether it was a renovation or a pavilion or an art installation or, um, something of a, like a small scale, I was just always interested in having my hands on something and dirty and like making. And I was addicted to also the, like the fast nature of doing something small but it was also really obsessed and still am with the impact that something big can have on you know, our friends, our neighbors, generations long after we're past. So I'd always been kind of doing these small things on the side. And sometimes there were nice synergies with bigger companies that I worked with. 
um, like with Gensler, you know, it was my, I had done a Kickstarter for um, Museo de las Americas to create an outdoor pavilion for um, students that didn't have art programming and were in kind of higher risk or less privileged schools. And so that had kind of that like small thing I was doing had forayed into this like bigger thing. So mm. um, I'd always been doing these kind of small projects and I had enough of them um, that I was like, okay, you know, I'll go back to Denver um, and spend my time doing my own projects. Um, but in the back of my head, I was like, I think Handel Architects needs to be in Colorado. We have a lot of work on the East Coast and the West Coast. And I was like, it makes no sense not to. And so Gary Handel had kind of approached me and said like, you should take Handel to Denver. I was like, hmm. yeah, yeah, so we should do that. So I have, you know, this very unconventional um, kind of day-to-day. So my time, I flex between part-time and full-time with Handel. Hmm. I flex between part-time and full-time with K-Work Studio Projects. And then I teach for... University of Colorado Denver now teach for Parsons New School of Design so that kind of stayed with me I took that from New York with me too um, and then do some consulting so there's a lot there's a lot of flexing um, between the things um, but it just it seemed like a no-brainer to like you know do like Handel should be doing these types of progress projects here um, and I should be working on both. Yeah, that's, that's one reason why I just wanted to have you on the show, because I think when I wrote to you, I said, you, you're so mysterious. Can we, can we talk so I can figure you out a little bit more? Because it's, yeah, it was like, okay, you have K-Works, you're working for Handle, you're, you're teaching here and you're teaching here. How, how are you doing this and how are you, how are you balancing it? And so you really do, you, you go kind of full-time to part-time with Handle. It, it, your time is allowed to kind of flex there. Is that depending on projects or or you know what? yeah it is really project-based and you know like I think it's it's either like really brilliant or or whatever the opposite is but you know projects flex so much and ebb and flow where you know we need a lot of effort during deadlines or we need a lot of time for a certain effort or when things slow down so there is a lot of kind of back and forth there was a period of, of like four or five months where I went back to New York to work on a specific project, um, a passive house design project at the University of Toronto Scarborough and got to kind of really focus on like facade design there before I came back. Um, we recently did a pretty large effort for around 2 million square feet um, for the old Greyhound site here in Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came on, you know, would come on full time for certain projects. Um, and like the same thing happens with K-Work Studio, you know, Sometimes my business partner and I, um, Katerina, will find ourselves, you know, with five deadlines and they might be teeny tiny projects, but I'm sure as you know, like teeny tiny projects, they kind of take the same amount of effort as like really huge projects. I think you still have the same fires and communication to go through. So um, I think it's a nice kind of flex between, between those things. Yeah, that's, that's so, so interesting and so nice. Just that kind of balance I feel that that I feel of of you know that entrepreneurial kind of spirit of your own firm versus being within a larger group where you're able to kind of work on bigger projects and be collaborative and and they're always kind of tugging on me in different ways and Mm -hmm. and I have to kind of let one take the reins but it seems nice how you figured out how to kind of hold all the reins I guess or and and pull them back because but you're, yeah, you're not dissimilar, right? Uh, you know, like, okay, your treehouse, I'm obsessed yeah. with like, that's a, that's a project also. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, you know, so 
yeah, that I think it's in all of us, this desire to be entrepreneurial because something was in us early on, some spark to just want to create. Mm-hmm. And especially with your, your business degree where it seems like, yeah, you're able to do it and you're able to maybe not be as afraid of some of those opportunities as others, or maybe just see them, see them differently, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that business school could give you. So let's talk about, mm-hmm. let's talk about uh, K-Works again. So talk about the sort of genesis of that and, and then your partnership with Katerina and like how that's come together. Kater- yeah. So Katerina um, is my good friend and business partner. She's in New York. She's from Austria. And um, so, okay. So when we first met, I didn't find this out until like years later, but when she, when we met, she was like, oh my God, who is this nerd? Um, because it was when I was debating about going back for a post-professional degree to go to grad school again. And I was like, eh, do I really want to do this? So I was going to like the open houses to these schools. Um, and so like, you know, most schools had an open house like Columbia and Cornell. And then I called Syracuse and they're like, oh, we don't like have one. It's like, well, could I, is there like a student who could just show me around? So the dean called Katerina and said, hey, there's a student. And that's when she's like, okay, who's this dork? Although, but in retrospect, if the dean called her, like, who's who's the biggest nerd, right? Like, yeah. they called you to, like, do this. So um, she did a horrible job of selling the school. I didn't go to Syracuse, but she, like, really sold me on, like, her and her work. Um, she was just finishing up her thesis project at the time. She's really interested in it, and her work was really engaged in Um, time, geology, the earth, impacts and cycles. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my work from school and to this very day has been really interested in time, material, consumer kind of patterns of waste, Um, like the things that we discard that we don't even realize, like these strange cycles and the like possibilities of material that we don't really understand and like material that could be used in different ways than how we use them conventionally from the scale of art or like a product or a really big building. Um, So we, you know, I didn't end up going to that school. So we didn't cross paths for maybe two years. And then we both found ourselves working in Manhattan. And I don't even remember who called who, but like we got together to chat about work and see if maybe there were some projects we wanted to like help each other with kind of these small projects that we were always doing on our own. Anyway, she was working um, for Christian LaHood Studio uh, who does really incredible interior architecture and design for a lot of retail, like high-end retail. Um, and so she was also always just like, couldn't help herself, but to do these other projects too. Um, and so we got together and I remember we were both like, Ooh, let's get wine and French fries. And we're like, we're going to be best friends. <laughs> like this is, this is something. So um, it was kind of like that day we started working on a project and then uh, we actually were shortlisted for this architecture competition to do um, an installation project in Boston, and like we just never stopped working together. So mm. there's there's one point, you know, both of us were working pretty challenging hours at the just the architecture for our full time jobs, and so we always found ourselves meeting in Koreatown because it was like the only place that had 24 hour cafes. So like we would just go to the same spots, and eventually we're like, we should maybe just like move in together. She was living in a teeny mm. tiny. Um, studio near Times Square. I was living in a teeny tiny apartment in West Harlem. And so we decided to um, get a place together and decided the Bronx was the right place to go. Um, We could get enough space to potentially build some stuff in there. Mm. Um, And we just wanted to learn about an area that was subject to a lot of upcoming gentrification. Um, Thought it was, you know, maybe wise to go and like kind of learn about these areas. 
Um, and so we, uh, you know, moved in together. We're working on a slew of strange things. Um, and then when I came to Colorado, decided to go back to Colorado, where it was going to become, you know, a lot of my focus. Um, she's like, yeah, let's keep doing all this stuff. So um, between the two of us, like we're really great at kind of that ebb and flow and back and forth. And so we have, you know, any range of projects from like, you know, some products we're working on designing ADUs or like tiny little renovations, like really unglamorous stuff. And also just like really fun stuff, um, art museum installations. Uh, we had ended up being the architect of record for an, a pop-up art installation mm -hmm. museum. And then they found out we had been re both really busy at that time. And it, the whole art museum was about sustainability. And we're like, oh my God, we should tell them that we want to also do an art piece. And we both were like, no, we haven't slept. We like are both running on empty. We're pushing like great, like it was, you know, that there's always that time where just everything yeah. doesn't align. And you're like, this is absurd. We're doing hundred plus hours a week. That's not healthy or sustainable. So we're like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna ask him if we can do an art piece. And then one day he's like, I heard you two are artists and like all of your work is about materiality and sustainable uh, material materials. And I, we were like, yeah. And so we ended up, we ended up doing um, two exhibitions as well as being the architect of record in that space, which was fantastic. Such an incredible experience. Um, but a lot of our work just feels like very energetic and, you know, it's stuff that comes to us and through like really interesting people or just really interesting stories. So we have a ton of fun doing it. Yeah. And how does that work working on in different, you know, two different time zones together? Have you, have you figured that out? Yeah, we were, we were nervous that it was going to be tough. Um, it's pretty easy. Like, especially because I'm working so much on projects on the East coast or working with people on the East mm -hmm. coast anyway, through Handel. So I'm pretty used to like shifting my schedule back about two hours. Uh, luckily, you know, people in New York like start a little bit later and yeah. people in Denver a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so it's actually not so bad. It's funny just during the pandemic and COVID so many people have become so used to working remotely and from home and in different time zones. Like, when you first asked that, I was like, oh, of course, it's fine. It's like, ah, you know, there was there was definitely a period of getting used to, though. Yeah. And even even just like digital workflows. Right. I mean, it's one thing to be in different time zones, but it's another thing where you can't tap on someone's shoulder and sketch together. Right. But, you know, yes, that is that is. And I feel like we're always still trying to find out better ways to collaborate digitally. Still, like I still feel like I'm always as an architect trying to figure out how to collaborate better, even in person, you know, mm -hmm. Um, but digitally, and it's like, we found some silly methods that actually have been some of the mm. most productive. I shouldn't even admit this, but like we use Snapchat a lot for uh, business, for business updates. Um, huh. cause like, <laughs> I think this happened because we had, you know, sometimes you have tough clients or tough things and like, you know, you have to share that information, but you can provide a little levity if you have like, I don't know, a, like dog ears or like <laughs> a, a funny voice or something. Um, it became a really great way to, to feel low pressure and, and communicating short snippets of information huh. um, when they weren't pressing, but had to be shared. So like to this day, we still use it quite a bit. Um, so, so like slack like, slack needs a uh, more filters on it maybe <laughs> no i don't know if anything needs more filters but <laughs> like it's nice having something that's low pressure um and like quick and easy i think yeah how do you especially with working where k works is you know not a full-time thing 
how do you how do you choose the kind of direction in the projects that that you're going on and, and pushing? Yeah, through? it's funny because I mean, it's rare that it doesn't feel full time. <laughs> you know, there are plenty of times when it, yeah. when it feels like two full time jobs. Um, but like one of the beautiful thing it, it allows us to do is to just take projects that feel like the right fit and not to feel any pressure to take certain projects. Mm. Um, they feel like all very passionately driven. We, you know, we've realized like we need to get better at um, delegating and bringing on other people. And it took us a long time. And we kept thinking that like, okay, well, us bringing on other people or expanding forces means like we need to, in the conventional sense, like have it one office and um, have salaried employees. And we realized that like, there is this beautiful opportunity of collaboration in way different ways, hmm. whether it's an independent contractor or somebody who's really fantastic um, at everything from creating a beautiful production set to bringing in new ideas of design approaches um, to visualization, to storytelling. So we've started to get better and are always kind of figuring out like, how do we bring on the right support to, to both like um, allow us to do the things that we're the best at and also because we're realizing how much we have to learn from from different people who practice architecture differently. So when we find that, you know, we want we know that we want to be small, like we like that our work is small and we, you know, know that, you know, some of the scope and scale will will grow. But like we want to find ways where we can stay kind of small and intimate in in the way that we design. So, you know, bringing on the right teams of people enables us to like flex when we need to. If there's a project that we just love and know that we don't have the capacity, um, then we start talking to people and expanding kind of our network of like who else would be the right person and be mm. interested and be able to like relay with us, which, you know, it's always a, a process. And I think our business model is a model based on changing. And so, mm we're continuing to grow or figure, you know, like change and evolve and like figure it out. Um, but that was just, you know, that only happened in the last year where we realized that like, we don't have to grow in the way we've seen everybody else grow. And we've always known that wasn't probably our model. So it's been really fantastic. Like the people that we've been starting to work with. Um, so I, so I hope we've continued to find other ways of, of collaborating. That's really interesting. I, I get sort of scared of, of this trend, you know, that I see of bigger, bigger firms kind of gobbling each other up until it's just one big world firm or something. And one, <laughs> one Ginsler finally wins. Uh, but, uh, but th this other model of kind of the gig economy or of kind of this, all these little collaborations occurring, uh, I don't know if I'd heard it put that way. And it's, it's really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I hope that maybe it's kind of the opposite of that. Yeah. It's so funny that you, you, you have your feet in both of those worlds, you know, the large and the small and yeah. Let's talk about um, teaching. So yeah, you, you wanted to teach. Um, you got into it pretty early, right after graduating. Uh, how, how did that kind of happen? Happen? Uh, it was actually, you know, it was a little bit further down the, the road. Mm. I knew I was interested in it. Um, I started writing about architecture more um, mm. as an avenue of kind of thinking more from an academic standpoint, as well as from like, you know, serving a client and trying to get a, a project built. Um, but it wasn't until I was in New York at Handel um, that I had an opportunity to teach for Parsons New School of Design. Um, and they have an architecture program and interior design and all sorts of fantastic things. So um, I started teaching for them 
uh, like hand drawing and rendering and interior kind of focused work um, in person. And eventually I got lucky that they, you know, were like, well, you know, we're pushing to create an online curriculum. This is like pre-pandemic. And they're like, we don't, we don't love it. The idea of like art and design being online, but you know, all our competitors are doing it. So we need to, we need to offer it. And it's also a good way to make this kind of design education more accessible to more types of people, which I thought was, you know, I realized like is really important because at first I was like, oh, how on earth am I going to help you develop an online version of like a design class? Like design is so much fun when it's in person and you're scribbling on things and you're making things and you're making a mess. It just feels like it's supposed to be in person. So I took some time to think about it and I helped them develop a new curriculum for an online version of two different classes. And, you know, it's like, okay, but like, I can't teach them, you know, but here's like help develop the curriculum. Like, well, maybe like you could just like, we could record you doing all the, you know, like hand uh, like demos and workshops and stuff. It's like, okay, fine. I'll be the like on-air talent, which I hated the idea of. It's like, just like, how long is that going to be circulating? How many dumb things am I going to say and do that's going to be out there for the world that I have no control over. But I was like, okay, fine. It'll be a good learning experience. So like filmed all of it. And they're like, okay, but can you also just like teach one class? It's like, no, I can't also do that. And eventually I was like, okay, okay. This sounds like fun. So um, it ended up being a complete blessing in disguise because it was not long after that, you know, I was started shifting to, to teaching online that I was like, you know, I'm going to go back to Colorado, but this is terrific. If you don't mind, I'd love to still teach it online. So I got to stay and I still to this day get to be a part of Parsons um, and do it remotely. And then not long after that, we all, we all were doing everything remotely. So um, it's been um, fantastic to stay a part of what I think is a really interesting institution um, and to kind of like question different ways of thinking about teaching online and teaching design and teaching remotely, all these fun things. Um, but I knew as soon as I came to Colorado, I'd reached out to various people at University of Colorado, Denver, and was like, hey, I want to teach there. I want to teach there. Uh, like, let me teach there. And they're like, yeah, sure. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> okay, awesome. Oh, that's easy. Uh, <laughs> so I, you know, the, the students that I'd been teaching at Parsons for a few years were mostly like grad level or second career students, um, uh, you know, had maybe already done a design degree. And, you know, I had very, I had sometimes I had like a VP of a bank who was like secretly changing her career to become a designer. Um, so like, I was not prepared, nor did I remember what it was like to be, you know, 18 to 22 years old, um, because I was thrown into the undergraduate department. And I had, I had to relearn a new way of teaching and take a step back and look at my audience to think about like, okay, what is the appropriate method and means of having a dialogue with undergraduates um, who are kind of experienced design, experiencing designing for the first time? Um, so it's been like so much, so much fun, uh, and it keeps me so much on my toes. Like there, you know, the students, there are students that are always bringing new perspectives and ideas to me, but it also puts a pressure on me to know what's going on, um, for me to seek out new ideas or to question ideals that I've developed when I present to them. Um, and so I realized that like, while I only teach, you know, like a, a class or two at persons and a studio, which is, you know, those studios, you know, a good chunk of time, but like yeah, a studio mental effort and yeah. Yeah. And endurance. Yeah. Endurance. Uh, yeah. 
but I just realized I'm like, I don't think I could ever not teach. What's it allow you to explore? Are you able to sort of start defining kind of your own project within architecture and, and using those studios to push that forward? Yeah, I've always, you know, sometimes more successfully than others, but I've always tried to bring my work into the classroom, um, not just to like give examples or talk about work, but to also help kind of de develop it. So if there's something like speculative um, that Katerina and I are working on, um, kind of using it as a vehicle in the classroom, depending on kind of the studio brief. Um, if I have, you know, depending on the semester, sometimes I might have more control over what the project brief is and like what we're doing and other times it might be more tightly coordinated but in those instances where I do I try to parallel it with some of the work that I'm trying to advance because I think it's the richest when I can bring something and the students can contribute something it can be kind of an online ongoing dialogue to push new ideas that otherwise you know I don't have as fertile a testing ground somewhere else yeah I'm curious I'm curious if you if you find yourself doing the same thing you know I, I try I, I've mostly taught studio two and three you know and I think you're mostly like three and four and so two and three it's just it's so difficult just to get the sort of basics of it um but I've been teaching these drawing classes more lately that and yeah that you you were you help review um where it's able to yeah. think about more representation in that way um but sort of less about design but that's something that I, you know you look at you look at full-time professors and the sort of um the specific kind of path that they a lot of them go on right that you have sort of have to in that tenure track of, of kind of thinking through what that what your project is and I've been thinking about that a lot lately of like how, how forced do I make that you know versus that how that kind of comes about you know yeah and sometimes you can't like help it uh, right. like there are semesters where you know I don't know the project is something that is a little bit more disparate than anything I'm working on but I just always find myself talking about materials and materiality and so like a big interest of Katerina and mine is working with cellulose and pulp and fiber mm. um, cellulose being the most abundant raw material on earth one of the most renewable um, materials for regrowth and also just like a lot of fun because it has so many latent characteristics working basically like recycled paper like you know can mold it into like chunky oatmeal and all this stuff and I just and we did a um uh, a few projects using discarded unused toilet paper and mm. I just I can't I just find my somehow it always becomes relevant like toilet paper to whatever architecture project so like sometimes you just can't help that like the things you've learned or the things that are passionate to you like come out in in surprising ways it feels like right and it, you know we have such as small amount of time to do anything and and even when you're working so hard and doing so much to make sure that that sort of effort or those rabbit you, you know you take it takes a lot of time to go down those rabbit holes and then to try to make them continue on like I've seen you do with the, these projects like these pulp projects and these things where it seems like you're really you're think you're using a minuscule level a material level thinking about material but then you're crafting space and thinking about space in a different way from those things and kind of reiterating and building that up on itself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly interesting. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. it's, in, it's inspiring to share that with my students, because I know when I was a student, I didn't expect some of the like art installation and small architecture projects and experiments that I was doing as a student, sometimes in the classroom, sometimes on my own, sometimes with like, you know, a client and sometimes just like 
to mess around with stuff and because I was curious. But I didn't realize at the time how much, you know, that would continue to carry with me for a very long time um, and, you know, become real projects in the future. Actually, one of the projects that I did in school, an installation project, and in the end, somebody snuck it into a handle rendering um, and they're like, yeah, we'll do that. And so they were going to um, the, the project ended up being put on hold and they were going to put it. But this was going to become an art piece in a Manhattan building, which was like never my intention. Um, so it was like it felt it felt very full circle. And I think it's also encouraging to students to know that, like, you know, your passions and interests is that you're interests that you're developing now are legitimate mm. um, and they can and should go on to influence your work, whether you decide to be your own practitioner or go, or go work for some big conglomerate, but like that's your individual contribution that you can bring to the table. And like, you'll never know where it might come back. And these, you know, projects are never done, right? Like we could rehash or redesign them a million times and maybe five years from now you revisit it with a new lens and it becomes something you didn't expect. So I think that I don't, it's motivating for me. I, I like to think for the students, it also is and gives them kind of, you know, a more a, a platformer to know that they do have a voice. Yeah. Well, and just that idea of putting things out there into the world, right. And not knowing how they're going to land, but doing it in a rigorous way that then people pick up on and it, it snowballs into something else, you know, like that, that sculpture into a rendering, into a real building, into a, yeah whatever yeah. like keep going you know exactly my little exactly. treehouse into a yeah magazine I love into, that treehouse yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my old fence that I didn't want to figure out how to put in the dumpster uh <laughs> so uh so so yeah you decided to come to come back to Denver um and so what was that uh choice a little bit and then what what is sort of your your community here in Denver and, and what kind of, what gets you excited or what are you passionate about here within this mm -hmm. space? Yeah. Um, yeah. So coming back to Colorado, you know, it was never the plan. And like I said, both Jonathan, my fiance and I were like, well, crap, like we didn't expect to like it here so much. This was supposed to be just a pit stop on our, you know, our life trajectory. And so um, it was interesting deciding deciding to come back, but it felt um, really right to be able to really engage in small projects and big projects and help hopefully sustainable and passive house and like projects that radically care about the environment and people that Handel does like get it here. Um, and so coming here, you know, before I, before I had left, I should say like a lot of my work and interests um, were humanitarian and philanthropic and nonprofit based. Um, and I, I learned something interesting when, you know, I was fundraising and trying to like get people to care about things that all of a sudden when I worked for Gensler, you know, they were willing to listen a little bit more. At first, I found myself kind of like angry about them. Like, you should care. You should care about people and the environment. Mm -hmm. Is there on the planet? Um, but I realized it's also okay. Like the, the most sustainable model of, of humanitarian work or philanthropic work or nonprofit work or that any work that helps marginalized communities is one that's like, uh, economically sustainable and lucrative enough to keep going to support itself and if that means there has to be this joint relationship between something that's doing good and somebody else maybe benefiting off of a relationship of potential projects for them like I'm 100% okay with that um, so I, I had been really invested in um, kind of uh, community building I think before and I'd been really involved with architecture for humanity um, which is now kind of changed names and like shape shifted a little bit um, and then I think when I 
came back. Um, and I think a lot of us are, are thinking about marginalized groups a lot differently in a, in a new lens and like with heightened attention to them. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about like being a woman in architecture and how can I help other young, young women in architecture and am I doing enough to be a voice of advocacy for young women in architecture to stay in architecture to help give support and means and resources to allow people who otherwise might feel pushed out of the profession to stay. So I feel like that's an ongoing personal project. Um, from the very beginning, I've really been interested in materiality and like the crazy stories of, the, like, of waste that we just don't realize. And I'm 100% guilty. You know, you throw something away and just never see it again. So trying to do projects that use um, waste in a new way and that can like hopefully change product streams, but that can also educate. So like the toilet paper project like didn't look like toilet paper. Um, you never would have guessed it was made out of toilet paper. It was this big 70 foot canopy. Um, but then if you like were interested a little bit to like read about it, you'd be like, what in the heck? This thing is made out of like discarded toilet paper. Did you know that, you know, every, almost every single big building janitors come in, they take partial rolls of toilet paper and they just throw them away about like three times a day because it is cheaper than paying janitors more hours to check for like empty rolls only. Mm. They'd have to check a whole bunch more. So labor is more expensive than toilet paper is more expensive mm. than our trees, which is like a whole absurd, silly, but ginormous issue that could mm. easily be rectified by people who design toilet paper holders, for example, <laughs> um, mm. or thinking about like, what do we do with paper as being like such a fantastic resource in the first place? So um, I think like the biggest avenues I'm hoping to continue to, to think about is like community and waste and the impact it has on us every day, the times we see it, but also maybe more so the times we don't see it. Um, and then in, in addition to, you know, being an advocate for, I think women or gender diversity in general is just learning to do a better job of listening to marginalized groups, um, like helping take action, but just listening. Yeah. So just like a lot of little small, easy things that you're, <laughs> no, <laughs> a lot of big, a lot of big, important things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, okay. That's a tough question. Adam, what does community mean to you? I think to, to me, it's just, it's, it's this podcast for me, you know, it's, it's, I miss school and I miss that collaboration that you have. And so for, for me here, it was, it was getting to know a lot of people. Uh, a lot of architects, but I feel I was always surprised when one, I think like famous person wouldn't know another one, you know, or another big architect. And so for me, it's just, I love connecting people and hearing stories and, you know, it's like, we're back sitting in studio. Right. And, I love um, that. and so that's sort of my first thing. And, and then, yeah, just trying to give different people voice and um, yeah, thinking that through, but. I think that's pretty great. I think that's really empowering. I like, right. You get some kind of strange joy from like helping people and maybe it's actually selfish and not so altruistic yeah. because it feels good. <laughs> right. But like recently, for example, in my um, Parsons drawing class, I had a few like guest speakers come in and talk about different aspects of drawing. And so um, somebody I'd met before I was in New York, I met her in Denver when I was working like before I went into like Gensler, I worked at a software company just to like pay the bills so I could go to architecture school, but also afford a mortgage. So um, I met her at this tech, tech company, tech startup. Um, 
fast forward in the future, her and I both ended up in Manhattan. She went back to school at FIT for fashion design and is now a fashion designer in mm. New York City. Does incredible stuff, largely for um, uh, marginalized communities and a big advocate for plus size fashion and for um, body empowerment. And long story short, she was um, a guest speaker about drawing and using markers and like in fashion. And it's not dissimilar to how you think about materials and architecture and a student like a year later came back and said that her sister's a producer who needs a fashion designer who cares about people and like equality and design is like I know the person like yes yes this is great like you guys work together and make beautiful things yeah. and like I got great joy out of that <laughs> exactly that's awesome well you know I just you know I'm, I'm so happy to finally this is our by far our longest conversation and get to oh, talk with you and no 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 I mean you and my, my oh. and your longest conversation <laughs> yeah. and just just get to know you better and I'm always inspired by your your energy and your passion and your design and what you're doing in the school in the city so thanks for coming well, on thank thank you likewise yeah you can visit architecting.com that's architect-ing.com to see images from this week's guest and please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. There's no such thing as balance. I hate that word. <laughs> Everyone, you know, talks about like, how do you find work-life balance? I was like, I hate that. Like work-life balance. Like there's no perfect harmony between like checking into work and then checking out to live your life. Um, and there's also that silly, like, saying that like, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Bullshit. Like, you know, even if you love it, there are going to be days that are tough. Um, but it like the stuff you love just makes it worthwhile to push through that. And I just, I think there are just an inherent ebbs and flows in any creative field, but it's so funny you bring that up because I've had, I think three different people in the last couple of weeks reach out to me and be like, Hey, could we just have a chat? I'm curious about like, how do you do this? You know, how did you decide to like start doing your own thing full time? And how did you like, how do you balance all this stuff? Um, and so like, I think there's an app, a total appetite for reconfiguring the way that we practice. Um, I was talking with, um, Ransom Beagles at yeah. our studio. Do you know Ransom? Yeah, that's funny. I, he's going to be on this summer. I just, I just talked <laughs> to him. That's so, that's so funny. Yeah. I, and again, I think huh. it was some stupid social media post that he put that I was like, Oh, that's pretty or, Oh, that's a funny huh. meme or something. And he's like, Hey, we should chat. I was like, we should chat. And they had that's him come so and funny. talk to my students. And I was like, we should collaborate. I didn't realize that he, he's like the landscape architecture texture version of me and Kat at Kwork studio because um, him and his partner are in, in New York and they yeah. started in one place and had to split. And I don't know, like, I have to say there's so much like awfulness that has come with the pandemic, but like this, willingness to work differently I think is pretty cool yeah no I totally agree with you that that idea of work-life balance like and I'm I'm even more into it because I, I don't have you met my wife Rebecca Wagner mm -hmm. she because she's an architect so. too and she so she works at Gensler um oh uh, really that's, that's okay. why I like making Gensler jokes uh, <laughs> uh we yeah. we went to we went to interview there and I got us an interview with with John Gambrell yeah and we went in there and we both sat down we were interviewing and at the end, he said, oh, yeah, this is great. Um, I don't know if I can legally ask this question, um, but is it okay if we only hire one of you, Rebecca? <laughs> it was like, and so he always, he always gives, yeah, we give shit, shit. I give, I like to give Ginzer shit for that, but uh, back That's and funny. forth. But um, you know, John, John actually like influenced 
I think this trajectory for me quite a bit because hmm. I worked with John and he had told me once I, I worked on the DIA, the airport renovation for literally like a day. Like hmm. I was calculating U values or something like that, completely insignificant. But he had said to me, he's like, you know, if you work on like one airport project, you become like, um, like an experienced airport designer. And if you work on two, like you become an expert. And that terrified me. Like, I love big projects and the like influence they can have on cities and people and humanity. But like, I was like, if, you know, like it could be 10 years to do two projects. And if that's like all of a sudden I'm pigeonholed to do, like I need to make sure that I always have these avenues to pursue other curiosities. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I get scared of that. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but anyway, yeah, that I'm just, I'm so into architecture, you know, that's all I'm doing, but I, I just have to be careful so I don't get burned out with, with mm -hmm. these different things. And and I've had to kind of take a one, well, especially since our, our daughter was born. So we have two kids now. It's like, it, it, yeah, it takes a lot. Like, so I've had to take a pause on studio for a little bit, but. Yeah. You know, and I think about that all the time because of all my friends and colleagues who are parents and architects and how incredibly tough it must be. Um, and there's something I realized in when I found Kat, like her and I joked that it was like, love it, like <laughs> friendship, love at first sight or something like that, um, where we have like the right amount of similarities, where we have the same like really core values. And then we have the right differences to kind of push each other, mm. catch each other. Um, and I've had a few other kind of partners or collaborators in way earlier formations of like Keywork Studio who were really fantastic. But I just realized that with Katarina, it was a pretty special fit. Like, um, if she has something in her personal life going, like I've got her back. And I know 100% if like I need, whether it's a break or there's something going on, like I know that she's like got me and we'll figure it out, which I just like, I feel like architecture so often is so cutthroat that we don't leave room for those types of things. Um, yeah. And so it feels really special where like if something, cause we do, we get to the point of burnout inevitably. It just, it happens. I think in any field. So like having someone who's never going to judge you for that and is going to like help problem solve a way to, to deal with it um, has definitely changed the, the way that I work. Yeah, no, that's awesome. It's like, it's so key finding that person. Right. And or you just gotta that. like put your children to work. Like they become your laborers. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I showed you that model, right. The, the, oh my <laughs> gosh. So cute. So fantastic. Uh, Okay, no, I'll tell you, I'll tell you about why we were there, but like, oh my God, I can't believe I had to share that. So see, where were you at? Yeah. yeah um, so when I was a part of Architecture for Humanity, um, I became a part of a design build project to go to Nepal and a pretty remote village called Basa and um, build an earthquake resistant school mm. because um, this was before the really, really big um, Nepal earthquake that killed quite a few people. Um, but we were going to build this out of earth bags. And so it was a pretty simple structure. Um, and so I, I kind of got involved in the project late after they had developed some design. And so eight of us from architecture for humanity, were going to trek into the Himalayas. Um, it just seemed like an incredible opportunity. So, you know, we had to raise a few thousand dollars to pay our way and to support the program. Um, and then we got to go hike into the Himalayas and go to this remote village where no Americans had gone as far as they had known so far. Um, and they were just helping them bring um, some electricity for the first time. And so we trekked in and it was eight of us who were all women volunteers. 
um, for architecture for humanity. And then Jonathan, my other half was like, oh, cool. That sounds fun. I'll come. And he like, he's not an architect. He works in HVAC and mechanical contracting, mm. but he's an incredible builder. Like the two of us get into so much trouble together. Mm. I have an idea and I'm like, let's build it. <laughs> um, and so he's like, yeah, I would love to come. That sounds super fun. Um, so it was really interesting because a big driver in the project was that, um, so it was a school building, just like a single classroom building, but it was going to have bathrooms and nothing, not even like running water necessarily, just toilets. And um, actually, I think running water might have been a future part of the project. I should check on that. But um, the idea was like they were going to have bathrooms and there was a huge problem in the village and like surrounding areas that like all of a sudden young girls weren't going at a certain point, they wouldn't go to school. And then like they dropped out in alarming rates. And mm. it was just menstruation. Like nobody wants to talk about it. But as soon as they would get their periods, they mm. were like told to go hide and like legitimately like you need to leave the village. We don't want to see you during this shameful period. Um, so Jonathan and I were placed with a family, a mother and a father and their adorable little son, Pukar. And it, sure enough, we'd been, I think we were in Nepal for somewhere around three to four weeks. And like, there was a week where she was just gone. And if we asked where she was, it's like, oh, she's, you know, tending to the fields. And it's like, mm, okay. Hmm. Um, and so they would be kind of forced to go live in these huts alone during this like shameful period. Um, so just having bathrooms was meant to enable young girls to not be shameful about it, to be able to continue going to school so they didn't get behind. So like, what a silly concept. Like, we just need some bathrooms to like, let girls be empowered and educated. Like, wow. um, so we went there to do um, this earth bag construction and which like, incredibly, like fast forward a few years to the like major earthquake. And we were all waiting like on bated breath for I think like days, if not weeks to hear if like that building had sustained, if it um, was still standing, if it like, that was a weird moment. We're like, holy shit. Like if we didn't do a good job that could have fallen on people and killed them was like a really weird feeling. Um, and so once we got mm -hmm. like the report back that the building is still standing, people were able to take shelter in there. It was like, okay, okay, okay. Like that's, that's great. Um, so like the trek in, like the whole experience was so incredibly interesting, like learning, like I've never met an entire community of people more friendly. Like we are complete strangers. I was an idiot and tried to, to learn Nepalese so that I could <laughs> like make a formidable effort to talk mm. and talk with them only to learn that they speak a very specific dialect called calling Rye, which sounds nothing the same. And they just like laughed at me politely. Um, so it was so incredible. You know, we ate doll bot every day. We like, the, you know, got to sit around the campfire and not campfire, their kitchen fire in the middle of the living room, like silly things. Like we were trying really hard to try to break through and not freak out poor Pukar, who was like, who are you weird people in my house? Um, Angry Birds on my phone was the thing that like broke the ice between us. He was so excited to play Angry, uh, Angry Birds. And then he yeah. was like, okay, I'm okay with you people. Um, so we spent a lot of time um, building the earth bag structure and we didn't do all of it. There were so many groups and so many people involved in like making it come to fruition. But every day we would hike from our, um, from like our family's home to the kind of project site where the school buildings were. Um, and so what we learned, the brief version of the, the other part of the story is that um, you're supposed to, you know, say Tati Pani, which is like, you know, we're dumb, weak Americans. We can't drink the water here. We need to, we need you to boil it for us before we can drink it because we're pussies. Um, and so 
what we learned is that tatipani doesn't translate exactly to boiled water. It just translates to hot water. And so uh, Jonathan and I, and I feel so bad because I think our family got like berated. It's not their fault. Like we're weak Americans. And uh, we got violently ill to say oh. the least. <laughs> so it passed in a few days, but um, yeah, yeah. We like, we're like, semi-conscious they were gonna figure out if we did uh, yeah so we like couldn't even leave it was like one day we both got super sick all of a sudden at the school site so like we just slept in the like a different school room until we could like stay conscious <laughs> how long how long yeah. were you there it was about three to four weeks in total oh, wow. so we started in Kathmandu and then trekked in and like we had the best luck of having the worst weather um because uh we weren't supposed to get a storm on and then we did. It was supposed to be one long day, like whole day trek through the Himalayas to get to the village. And we got bad weather. And so our guide, our Sherpa, Karma Sherpa, the most amazing person ever, um, took us to a Buddhist monastery in the remote Himalayan mountains mm. for us to stay, which was like spelt like it was uh, like nothing else I'd ever seen. Although they had it like most of the, the llamas that were there had not seen women in many years. So I think it was a little startling when eight <laughs> women paraded in. <laughs> hey, yeah. Uh, oh, but get, get this. Um, we walk up to the monastery and I can, and it's this like incredible structure and like feels sacred just walking up to it and all the steps that you go up. And there is a mother trucking steamboat springs bumper sticker on like a step leading up to it I was like this what? is very strange I wow. don't know what that means yeah huh that's mm -hmm. so funny yeah architecture for humanity dissolved yeah, sorry, and became yeah. open architecture network and so they do hmm. a lot and they have they have a lot of leadership that carried over and um still do a lot of similar projects architecture for humanity was kind of born out of um refugee support um and then it started to develop um you know that it started to develop into more like localized community growth efforts and how to use design and architecture and space to empower marginalized communities or bring community together or make spaces that were good for people. Um, so I think, you know, that network, that open architecture network that it's developed into still does a, a ton of that. And I think it's, it's so easy to find people trying to do good that sometimes it's just like trying to figure out where, where can I make the biggest impact? Yeah. I feel like. Yeah. And it's just, you know, with that, again, you have these small amounts of time that you can put towards something or focus towards something. And that's where I want to focus. You know, I want to help people and I want to do things, but yeah, mm -hmm. those opportunities of where that, especially once you get older, you know, it, it seems like it's easier to take off four weeks when you are a little bit younger, and have less things. and It is um, right. So yeah, I completely agree. And that that was something that, you know, we go in and we're like, oh, we're coming to help. And you realize yeah. that like you are, but also like you're learning a lot and, you know, you know, you don't want to, you, yeah, I, you have to be yeah, careful that, about that, like, like white savior that, sort of, ex yeah, that's what, exactly. Yeah. So sometimes like, like yeah. sometimes I just try to say like, sometimes just give money. If you have money to give, give money and let the people who can do the best work with it, do it. But yeah. I still want to go back to Nepal and see Pukar all grown up. Although I'd be okay if I don't have to eat Dalbad ever again. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about like passive house at all or? or... Sure. 
Well, yeah, I mean, a little bit because it's, I mean, it's something I'm still constantly learning about and I'm not a passive mm. house certified designer and there's a handful of architects at Handel Architects who are, um, but I think it is like such an obvious way to meaningfully decrease the energy output of buildings. So, okay, so Passive House started as a design certification, much like LEED or the like hundreds that are out there. Um, and it's not to say like Passive House is the best. I think it's like one of the most, uh, that could, it is one that can make the biggest difference and it can be paired with other things, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that you can use low tech off the shelf products to just make a better damn building and a better mm -hmm. envelope and to think um, about the performance so Passive House came about in originally in Germany and it was meant for single family houses. And then eventually someone was like, well, why can't we scale this up to multifamily and to other large buildings? So Cornell Tech, um, it's called the house at Cornell Tech is one of Handel's projects on Roosevelt Island. Hmm. And I think it still is the tallest residential passive house in the world. And I hope we get beat very soon because it just makes sense to do. Yeah. But so like just by following these guidelines, um, you can end up with a high-rise building with 60 to 80 percent less energy output uh energy requirements was just like is a no-brainer and so it's just like lead or any other program it you know used to have a higher cost because it could have been like oftentimes it's cheaper things that you're using or you need a way less of a mechanical system but it's just the unfamiliarity with it so there are mm. case studies of um organizations that have been like either mandating it or incentivizing it enough that now it's it's just as cheap, if not cheaper to do passive house because people are used to it. So there's always a learning curve, but we're going to increasingly have energy stringent or increasingly stringent energy restrictions. So like eventually a passive house building is just, it is, it's just going to be a building because this is what we have to design to. Yeah. So sometimes I just feel like shaking people and like, this is like super obvious to do. So like, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's mostly increased insulation and then just using passive thermal strategies right or passive exactly. yeah yeah yep exactly so yeah so i do think that's um a, a huge advantage i think like we've done it in new york and we've done it in toronto like denver is actually an even more mild and temperate climate mm. um so yeah i think I, I think it's just a matter of time yeah that's a cool thing to be like an expert in i mean you know you, you're saying you're not an expert but but knowing a lot about it and you get definitely you give it, like talks like, about it right it. yeah yeah <laughs> i'm yeah. definitely a pushing i'm an expert, expert at like pushing it on people and saying like listen i think one of the questions you had um asked before was uh like have have you ever thought about leaving architecture mm -hmm. and i just i like i feel like architecture is is so many things that um like there's I don't know. There's just so many things that I'm always like, Oh, I want to try that. Oh, I want to try that. Or I want to meet someone who's designing that. Or like Kat and I are trying to turn paper pulp into furniture. And we're like, why aren't we, mm. we could do this with jewelry as well. Let's mm. do light fixtures. Um, and like, you know, we're both really interested and in our yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, it's our candle. So our, we, pr we produced designed and produced a candle as like a test, um, just to kind of like test out the market, try out some like manufacturers but now, which has been really like helpful and informative, but like now we got to sell all these goddamn candles. So if you <laughs> or anybody, you know, wants a really awesome, beautiful soy candle that smells like, I think lavender, 
um buy our candle so that uh, we <laughs> i'll put that i'll put that on the podcast yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we can say this this episode this episode is sponsored by uh k-works candles yeah <laughs> katarina will be so happy she's been spearheading trying to like sell the last of these candles but it's been that was like a really good uh experiment and made us realize like how yeah, we want to design candles and kitchenware and clothing and shoes like we're both really interested in overlaps between fashion and architecture like um my I don't know are you familiar with United Nude and Rem mm -hmm. D cool house yeah. okay yeah 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 so like it's one of like my favorite collaborations where the um, the nephew of Rem cool house the architect you know designs shoes and like in their box if you ever buy their shoes it says like we figured out how to design shoes by not knowing how to design shoes mm -hmm. so we allowed ourselves to do it wrong and that's why they do it differently and so they question a lot of the things that have been considered status uh, quo about like what does a shoe have to be and I think it's our obligation to do the same thing with buildings like small mm -hmm. and simple buildings or big and complex buildings but like it's worth challenging what it could be yeah that's so awesome. buy our candle so we can start designing our shoes <laughs> <laughs> so we can start designing the, our buildings yeah the yeah, candles yeah. to the shoes to the shoes the and then the building yeah. yeah out of yeah exactly all out of pulp so uh, I like that yeah <laughs> That's cool. Uh, well, you said, did you finish your thought? Because you said, uh, <laughs> if I ever wanted to be out of, out of architecture, was that, was that, oh, we kind yeah, of derailed to... you with the candles. <laughs> I was trying to, <laughs> I was trying to say that, like, um, there's just so many things that I think are interesting about design. And even if, like, for all of us with this technical architecture training, like, we've been taught to, like, design and think about design and, like, really, we're problem solvers and I just think there are so many interesting applications um that like I think you have the same thing like you just always want to be considering what you could be making and like mm -hmm. there's just something so gratifying about trying something and who knows if it fails but like making something and manifesting something and then even if it's that little spider creature from your son like <laughs> yeah. you know it's now a thing that exists <laughs> in the world exactly so I just thought it was such an interesting question I think also because women get pushed out of the profession at a disproportionate rate um but like I think I'm tenacious enough and just too obnoxiously curious about like all the different facets of design that I like I won't go anywhere <laughs> yeah do you want to talk about that anymore like being a woman in the profession or you know I don't I don't want to like direct every woman towards that but uh I don't know if you have any <laughs> thoughts or do, I'm just oh I have thoughts yeah thoughts. <laughs> well, lay it on us. Uh, well no I think it's a fair question though because look like I had mentioned before, we're all thinking about marginalized communities in different lenses with everything from uh, Black Lives Matters and thinking about Asian hate crimes and all the way that marginalized groups are systemically being oppressed and a lot of times in indirect ways. And there were a few years back that I think I thought I was like, you know what, I don't know if the best way for me to advocate for women in architecture is to like get on a soapbox and say like, hey, we're here and we deserve to be. Hi, hi, kiddo. Hey, you want to say hi to my friend? <laughs> This is Kate. Nope, he just brought me a flower. And... Aww, yeah, there we go. That's so sweet. See, my dogs don't bring me flowers, so like they probably bring you other things. Going. Well, they oh, also, that's true. They also don't interrupt your podcast, probably. So <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> the the, the profound thought that you were just about to finish, they got interrupted <laughs> by this dandelion. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I think that actually it's kind of a perfect segue because, like, I am a woman who does not currently have children, despite being at an age where most of my similarly aged colleagues do have women or do have women, do have families or children. 
Um, and oftentimes, not always, but bear a greater brunt of the responsibilities at home, not always. Mm -hmm. um, and I see it, I see it taxing on women. And that's why we only see at like upper levels of architecture management, closer to 30% women in architecture. So I hear a lot of people tossing around like, oh, it's 50%, you know, young women coming out of school, but like they drop off at alarming rates. So I think like there are so many different ways we need to explore it. And I don't know the solution, but I'm trying to, to be a better part of it because like what I was saying before is like, I didn't know if being on a, a platform and just like a soapbox and saying like, Hey, treat us equally was like the right thing to do. I was like, well, maybe I can just like lead by example mm -hmm. and be empowered through that. And I think in the past like year or two, I was like, fuck that. That's actually <laughs> really not enough. Mm -hmm. um, and my gentle pushing and prodding of like, mm, maybe you should like have gender diversity just on your juries or like, why am I one of uh, like 50 or not 50, one of usually like 20 to 30 people at this meeting. And I'm literally the only woman here. Like what is happening that other people aren't empowered or in the positions it's not because they they just chose not to yeah. so I think the thing I've I'm I'm learning to do or wanting to do is to be a louder voice to say like it's going to require us doing more I'm completely guilty of having had like academic juries or reviews or forming a panel and like you know being like okay well I have one woman on the panel or I reached out to women and I tried but they're not on it like I used to be just as guilty of that and now yeah it takes doing more for all of us to say like, okay, if your network is not, does not contain more women, then seek them out. And mm -hmm. so I've been trying to tell, you know, especially people in academia, because these are, you know, our students who are going on to be our professionals that we want to stay in the profession. We need women's voices in architecture to say like, if you don't know women in architecture, one bullshit, but two, call me, I will introduce yeah. you to like 20 tomorrow. Um, and so it just, it takes a little bit more effort because these things that are oppressing marginalized people in any group, they happen with the best intention. It happens from my colleagues who, you know, purport or say, and maybe they are like actual advocates for women, but then their actions aren't speaking loud enough. They're not going the, like take 30 extra minutes to like reach out to colleagues, um, that you're not, in, you're not familiar with, or if you know that, um, maybe you're finding more women cancel on you and can't attend, then maybe you have to invite more because they are bearing disproportionate responsibilities. And more often women are taking on more responsibilities also in the office. So yeah. I think, I think it's important and like same to you. And also for parents, the fathers, oh my gosh. Hi, cutie. Hi. Can you say hi? Can you wave? Hey, can you, can you blow her a kiss? <laughs> Can you blow a kiss? Oh no. That's her new big thing is blowing kisses. Thanks, Adam. Thanks. Thanks, Gay. See ya. Yeah. Bye.